Now we come in our study of Matthew's Gospel to chapter 11. I have actually referenced the first portion of chapter 11 11 several times as we've moved along. I actually want to move on now to verses 20 through 30. Pardon me. Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse uh, 20. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Our Father, as we now come to these awesome, awesome words, uh, words of judgment, words of grace, words of invitation, all rolled into one, we pray that the blessed Holy Spirit will be at work in our souls, that we may be drawn to the Savior of whom we have just sung, uh, that has paid to the utmost farthing whate'er thy people owed so that we owe it no more. Father, this is the good news upon which we dwell Sunday after Sunday, day after day. This is what life is all about, glorifying the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And so will you please be at work through your spirit that this always, this Lord's Day, will always be the high day for your people and that it would never be for us business as usual but always the special, special time in which we publicly gather and worship and meet with you in the preaching of the word. Hear our prayer and bless it, we pray, for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, beginning with verse 20. This is the word of God. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Uh, Three of the greatest themes found in the Bible are found in this portion of God's Word that we have read together this morning. And I wanted to read all of this together because it hangs together, and it's important for you to see how all of these things relate and hang together. 
They culminate in the great invitation of Jesus, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But will you first of all notice that that great invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ comes against the backdrop of judgment on unbelief? We began by reading this opening in which the cities of Tyre and Sidon even are mentioned, the, the, the cities in which Baal was worshipped in the Old Testament. Uh, cities that were ugly and filthy, morally depraved. And then, of course, Capernaum is mentioned, that city in which Jesus had, had preached the gospel and had ministered so fully. Capernaum, here Jesus cured the centurion's servant, healed Peter's mother-in-law, the man with the palsy, raised Jairus' daughter, healed the woman with a flow of blood, opened the eyes of two blind men, cast a demon from a dumb man. And his point here is simply this, that if those things that have been done in a place like Capernaum had been seen in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. A kind of hyperbolic expression in which the Lord Jesus is saying, you have sinned against privilege. I have come to you and I have preached in your midst and I have performed these mighty deeds And you have not turned to me, you have not come to me, that you might have rest. And so the first thing that we see, of course, as we think about this judgment on unbelief, is the reality of the judgment of God. That God is a God of justice and that he is a God of judgment. Today, which is flatly denied or seriously questioned in many a church, The new buzzword is love wins. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, It means that, according to these people, God is love, and because he is love, everybody is going to be saved. Everybody in the end is going to be saved. The new universalism, love wins. Well, let me tell you, love does win. And the love that wins is the love that God has for his own glory, which includes his justice. And the Bible nowhere teaches that everyone will be saved, but that God is a God of justice and that he is a God of wrath. Without this, we cannot understand the love of God. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came into this world to save sinners under the wrath and condemnation of God. That's love. That he demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can't understand the love of God without the justice and wrath of God. You can't understand evangelism and its purpose if you don't understand the wrath of God. What happens in evangelism? You preach the gospel, you give someone a gospel tract, you tell them about Jesus. Why? Because they're under the condemnation of God and they need a transition from wrath to grace. That's what evangelism is, to the glory of God. It's taught consistently in Scripture. If we went to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, we would find that all humanity is fallen in our federal head, Adam. That when he sinned, we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression, and his guilt has been imputed to all of his posterity, and we are under the wrath of God. We are born in wrath, under that wrath. So that Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath even as the rest If we read the words of Jesus himself in John 3, 36, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's Jesus, meek and mild. 
The wrath of God remains on the one who does not believe in me. All the way to the end, if we come to the last book of the Bible, we find that phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. I always find that phrase to be so moving because Jesus is the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And yet those who do not trust in Him will know the wrath of that very same Lamb. And so the reality of God's judgment is taught here in this text. But not only the reality of God's judgment, but the reality of greater judgment for some than for others. Every sin against God is deserving of His infinite displeasure because it is a sin against God's infinite holiness. That's true. But nonetheless, some sins are more heinous than others. And there will be gradation of punishment. It will be better, he says, for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you cities in which I preached the gospel and did these works of miracles. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here is a sobering reality. The more light that shines, the more responsible is one who remains in darkness. Did you hear that? The more light that shines, the more responsible is one who remains in darkness. As Bingle, the Old New Testament scholar, taught, every hearer of the New Testament is either much happier or much more wretched than one who lived before Christ. This is intense. It's serious. It's sobering. Because I cannot help but ask as a pastor, is there someone here like that? You have had greater privilege than Capernaum. You have a completed Bible, a closed canon. You have God's complete revelation to us. Some of you, do you sit here week after week after week, Sunday after Sunday, and you hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet you remain in darkness? This indeed is sobering. And so what is presupposed here is the reality of unbelief against which God's judgment comes. We are born in sin. We are under condemnation. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are incapable of belief and yet responsible to believe. That's our plight. We're sinners incapable of any movement toward God whatsoever and yet responsible to return to the God from whom we have departed. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. Every person will die in his sins who does not turn to Christ for salvation. But how can he? If indeed we are depraved and sinful and lost, how can anyone turn to Christ for salvation? I have used all of my ministry, all of these years, an illustration that I now repeat to you. We place on the edge of this pulpit a buzzard. Big, dark, massive wings, crooked beak. We place that buzzard here. And here you put steak and baked potato. And here you put a dead, decaying body. And you say to your buzzard, there's your choice. Which will he take? Well, of course. He'll take the steak. No, he won't, will he? He'll take the dead, decaying body. Why? Because it's his nature. 
Does he have a choice? Sure, it's right in front of him. Which will he take? He'll take the dead, decaying body because it's nature, and he will continue to do so unless something happens to change his nature and he no longer has a buzzard's nature. So it is. When the good news of Jesus Christ is presented and life and death are placed before us sinners, the choice is there. But we will choose according to our nature. We will choose death and decay every time. Unless there's a sovereign work of grace to change our hearts so that we now desire life and want life and desire what once we did not want. Now that's the picture that's painted for us here. The judgment of God against unbelief. And the Bible says that unbelief is so deeply rooted that apart from a work of sovereign grace, we cannot turn to him. It's not that we don't have a choice. It's not that we're not invited. It's not that there's no general call. We're incapable of responding because of our sin. And so someone says to me, well, pastor, what about free will? Where do you get that? Show me that in the Bible. Free will? Free will is a slave. It's in bondage to sin. That's why it's important that we read all of this together and we come next to the second point, which is the power of distinguishing grace. Let's read it again, verses 25 through 27. At that time, at that time, when he had pronounced these woes on the city, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now here we have distinguishing grace. This is election, and it's unmitigated. Jesus teaches it in clear, uncertain, no uncertain terms. The Father and the Son, sovereign in converting sinners. The doctrine of the gospel is hidden from the wise and prudent, that is to say, from proud human nature. Christ's person and work is hidden from the worldly and the conceited, which means all of us, leaving us in darkness and in blindness. Without grace, no one will see the beauty and glory of Christ. He reveals himself to whom he chooses to reveal himself, and it's altogether sovereign grace, as he says in verse 26. Yes, Father... For such was your gracious will. Without this divine intervention, no one would be saved. God's reason for calling you had nothing to do with anything in you, believer. God's reason for calling a sinner to himself has nothing to do with what is inside the sinner. There was nothing to commend us to God's sovereign grace and mercy. It's not in man, but what is in God. He loved us because he loved us. And in his sovereign counsel and purpose, he has determined to reveal his gospel to his people. Why do some believe and others not? How often an unregenerate man will hear the gospel and yet he will remain completely unmoved. Two people will come, the same family, similar backgrounds. They may be identical twins. One walks out saved, the other walks out lost. It's not because of anything in them. It's because God's grace has reached down sovereignly and enlightened the heart and called them and drawn them to himself. Someone says, well, pastor, you're keeping someone from heaven who wants to go there. Where do you get that? 
No unbeliever wants to go to heaven, not the real heaven. Just suppose for a moment an unbeliever outside of Christ, in his darkness, could go to heaven just for a little while. It can't happen, but just suppose it. What would he say? Oh, I hear these hymns that are being sung. Let me stop my ears. I hate them. I hate every one of them. I hate all of the words. They're singing to this lamb on the throne. He's my enemy. I hate this lamb sitting upon this throne. There is no man, woman, or child that wants Jesus Christ apart from the grace of God. The sovereign, free mercy of the Lord alone can change the heart. Now, will you notice here in this passage that Jesus is not only teaching distinguishing grace, he is delighting in distinguishing grace. Here the cities have denied him. They've not believed. And yet, right there, he says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them unto babes. I thank you for so it seemed according to your gracious will, the good, the good thing to do. It was according to your good purpose. It fulfilled your glorious desire. I praise you for that. I thank you for that. And every believer in Jesus wants to follow his Lord in admiring, distinguishing grace. No one deserves salvation. And if he saves one, it's grace. And no minister can be faithful who does not teach this thoroughly to his people. I cannot be faithful to you if I do not teach it because you cannot understand grace without it. If I didn't teach this to you, pride would rear its head so often you would continue to try and mingle grace and works, you just would be all mixed up. If I didn't teach this to you, also a necessary plank for the assurance of faith would be missing in your life. You say, well, pastor, am I elect? Let me ask you this question. Can you say from the heart... Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Can you say that? Can you say from that that depth of your soul, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, hopeless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Can you say that? If you can say that from the heart, you're elect. Because only the elect will believe and every one of the elect will believe. That's the point. Behind the saving faith that I have is God's everlasting love and mercy and decree to save me. And that means that he keeps me for time and for eternity. But another reason that a minister, I could not be faithful if I did not preach these things unto you is because this is the truth that continually humbles us into the dust And leads us to worship God. So that we sing together, Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Lord, why me? I'm no different than anyone else. I have nothing to commend me to you any more than another. Indeed, looking at my own heart, I see that I'm the chief of sinners. Lord, why me? And the only answer is God loved you because he loved you. It wasn't because of anything within you. Admire the grace that drew you. It was effectual. No one can resist it. Jesus is praising God for this truth. Why? He looks at at Chorazin. He looks at Bethsaida. He looks at Capernaum. They're not believing in him, but you see, Jesus sees something that they don't see. Jesus sees that God, the Father, is at work. 
that there is a remnant according to the election of grace, that he has his people and his people will believe and his people will be saved. And he sees that God is at work, even in this world in which right and left people deny the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject the clear invitation to come to him. Some of you may know the name Henry Atherton. Henry Atherton was the pastor of Grove Chapel in London, actually one of my good friends, until recently pastored Grove Chapel in London. And he also was the president of the Sovereign Grace Union. It was a a union of uh, uh, Anglicans, Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, people that believed the doctrines of grace and wanted to disseminate them throughout England. But Henry Atherton was not always a believer, not always a minister of the gospel, not always faithful to his Lord, disseminating the good news of Jesus throughout England. He was a profligate and a gambler and a a Christ rejecter. He grew up in a godly home, rejected the gospel, rejected the good news of Jesus Christ. One day as a young man, he was in his father's home and he found a track that was was lying up on the, the mantle, took it down, looked at it and read it. The track began this, this way, where will you spend eternity? He read through it and he was so angry he threw it in the grate that it might be burned up. Stormed out of his father's house, went to find one of his buddies, started talking to him and his friend dropped dead right at his feet. God took it home, where will you spend eternity? God was drawing Henry Atherton to himself. No wonder this man was such a champion of sovereign free grace. In the end, he said, of course, there was nothing in me. I didn't love God. I didn't want God. God sovereignly, freely, lovingly called and changed my nature and regenerated me and gave me the gift of faith. And every true child of God can say that as we look back on our experience. There was nothing in me. It was all of grace from first to last. And that's the good news of this chapter. So that now as we come to the third point, which is the great invitation of Jesus, you see it against this backdrop, don't you? Here is the just judgment of God upon unbelief. Here is is the sinner resisting and hating those things that are true, not wanting the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will such a person be saved? Well, that person will be saved because God and his sovereignty has determined to save a people for himself, a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. So that now as we come to the great invitation and Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is with the confidence that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, there will be those who respond to the invitation. Thank God. And so we come to the invitation. May we read it again, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, first of all, here, of course, the person described laboring, heavy laden. Not the proud, not the arrogant, but the weary and the burdened in the midst of toil and overloaded labor that will never end, a toil that will never end, a burden that will never be removed unless unless Jesus Christ removes it. What is that load? It's the load of guilt, my friend. It is the load of guilt. It is the load of sin, that 
heavy burden of guilt that accumulates as we go on and on and on through life. The guilt of Adam's transgression imputed to our account. The guilt that we accrue through our own transgression as we move through life. What a burden it is. But in the midst of this, Jesus Christ calls out this wonderful promise. I will give you rest. You come to me and I will give you rest. A quote from Jeremiah 6.16 because Jesus is the fulfiller of what Jeremiah the prophet prophesied and promised. Relief to your guilty conscience. Your conscience will trouble you until the day you die and for eternity to come if you do not come to Jesus for rest. You know, conscience keeps a record. You sin yesterday, you go on about your day and forget it, then something happens and you remember something I did, something I thought, something years and years ago, something happens and I remember, oh, I hated a person, I stole a piece of property, I I had a thought that was filthy, I determined to do someone ill. Conscience keeps a record. And if you are outside of Christ, that record will come up again. It will come up again on the day of judgment. And all that your conscience has witnessed against you and all that you have done contrary to the law of God, every bit of it, every bit of it will come up again. Unless there is someone to wipe your conscience clean. (laughs) Unless there is someone who can expunge the record Unless there is someone who can take your conscience in hand and say, in my love and in my mercy, I wipe you clean. The invitation extended, come to me, take my yoke and learn of me. Are you under the condemnation of the law? Come, lay your burden at Jesus' feet. By faith, lay hold of Christ's person and blood and righteousness and sacrifice. His yoke is easy, a metaphor for discipleship. Not the yoke of the law, but the yoke of grace. But to me, what is most remarkable in the invitation is the basis of the invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Don't you find that, as I do, to be most remarkable and wonderful? How is this the foundation for our faith, the foundation for our coming to Jesus, that Jesus is meek and lowly of heart, my friend? Because as we read this in light of all of the Bible and the remainder of the New Testament, we know this is the second person of the Trinity who came into this world and became a man and obeyed the law that you broke in your place and went to a cross and shed his blood that you might be saved and redeemed from your sin. It is servant language, language that comes from Isaiah 53 and other passages, language such as we find in Philippians chapter 2 that speak of the incarnation of our Lord who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He is saying, look, look, look to me. I'm God himself become man. And I am meek and lowly of heart. I've come to save and redeem you from the wrath of God and to redeem you from the condemnation under which your conscience labors. He's pointing to who he is as the incarnate God who would upon the cross satisfy just divine vengeance. 
And so this is the invitation that is sent out through the preaching of the Word to us today. For those of us who believe already that we may believe it yet again. Embrace Him yet again and more deeply and more readily and more fully. For those here who have never embraced Jesus Christ, that by the power of the Spirit of God, your heart be opened and you come to Him for rest. And so here I am, a sinner. Maybe someone here, you're saying, here I am, I'm a sinner. Oh, pastor, you just don't know. My conscience is so dirty. The burden is so incredibly heavy. I can't sleep at night. I toss and turn. I constantly, constantly think through what I've done, what I've done, what I've done. I am so burdened. I am so guilty. I am so weary. I am so heavy laden. The guilt is unbearable. How can Christ help a sinner like me? I will tell you how Christ can help a sinner like you. For those who respond to the invitation, you may know that behind it is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So here is the guilty sinner, his conscience filthy before the holiness of God, who says from his heart, Shouldst thou smite my soul in hell, the righteous law proves it well. But now, but now, wonder of wonders, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You come to Jesus by faith, and the burden of guilt is removed. Because Jesus said, my father, my father, treat me as if I were that sinner. Punish me in that sinner's place. And the moment you believe, the moment that you believe, you are guilty no longer. Why are you guilty no longer? Because Jesus said, I will stand where you stand, sinner. And he stripped off his royal righteous robe. And he said, here, I will now take your filthy robe before which you stand in the courtroom of God before his holiness. And I will put on your robe so that when, when the mud showers of the wrath of God fall, they fall upon me, not upon you. And here, you now take by faith. My perfect righteous robe that I weave upon the cross, you take it, I put it on you, and there you stand. There you stand as me. There I stand as you. I shall be the guilty. You shall be the righteous. I will be the condemned. You will be the justified. So does it happen? Does it work? Here comes justice. And justice says, bring that sinner to me. Do they bring you, believer? No, no, they don't bring you. They bring in the spotless Lamb of God who bore your sin on the cross. Christ is brought. But you, the righteousness that Christ wrought is yours. Through imputed righteousness, you are just in the presence of almighty justice. And there is nothing left, nothing left for which you might be punished. Do you hear it? Guilty sinner, heavy laden, burdened by the fall. Sinner, come to Christ, trust in Him, and there is nothing left for which to punish you. Because every bit of it was laid on Christ, and He was punished in your place. 
And now the very justice which once condemned you speaks for you. And that very justice says, you can't punish that man, you can't punish that woman, you can't punish that child, because I took punishment in his place. One of the old divines rightly said, a redemption that does not save is not worth preaching. That's right. But we have a redemption that saves, as we sung in that middle hymn. Justice looks upon you now, believer, And when justice looks upon you, what does justice say? Justice now looks upon you, and justice says, I am satisfied. I am completely content. Come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. O blessed voice of Jesus, which comes to hearts oppressed, it tells of benediction of pardon, grace, and peace, of joy that hath no ending, of love which cannot cease. Come unto me, all you who are laboring and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.